Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to you. Hey, how's it going? Hope you guys are enjoying your day. Another podcast with myself, Samson Folk. Not the Raptors weekly one, but the last one in the series where I bring in people who watch the league at large and I try and figure out what they think of the Raptors so that it's not just me telling you, hey, I think the Raptors are maybe a little bit underrated and then we get this little bubble. So today we have Mike Prada, who is currently working on a book on modern basketball and that comes out in the fall, so keep your eyes peeled for that. We'll talk mm-hmm. a little bit about it here. But mostly, we want to talk about the Raptors and what he thinks about them. So your flashbulb moments of the season or your flashbulb takeaways, what are the big broad strokes you have so far? Yeah, yeah. Um, the flashbulb moment. I mean, just I love those games against Miami. I just thought that was like kind of basketball ascending to a new plane of spatial existence with the way those <laughs> games are played. Uh, I just I would love to see that matchup. I don't think the Heat would like to see this mat that matchup. I think that would be really difficult for them. Um, it just felt like I was watching a new sport. But you know, other than that, I think you know the only place to really start is Scotty Barnes. You know, I don't think I really didn't know too much about college prospects. I don't have a lot of time to spend studying. I think a lot of people obviously were surprised that that was the pick. You know, it wasn't Jalen Suggs where they had this very clear need for another guard. And it turns out that not only was is Scotty Barnes better than Jalen Suggs, but he might be like way better than Jalen Suggs. He might be the best player in the draft. And just watching the ways that he's coming into his own have just been, I mean, it's so unexpected and so remarkable and so much fun. It's like kind of this, this kid who's slowly realizing how powerful he is. Uh, it's just been, even though I think in some ways it's probably hurt the short-term win-loss record of the Raptors to let him do all this stuff. It's obviously got a lot of long-term benefits and it's super fun to watch like, Hey, what will this guy figure out that he can do next? You know? So I don't know if it's necessarily a single flashbulb moment. It's just, I mean, the guy is just captivating. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's, it's interesting that you picked him in January. I put out a piece where I tracked every possession that he used in the regular season. And it was this big thing. And like the takeaways from it were just immense. And my biggest takeaway takeaway was like, wow, this guy is probably going to be a bonafide isolation scorer, which is ridiculous for a guy that was described as, and this isn't meant as anything towards Sam Vecini. It's just the most, you know, popular term is the zero level score descriptor for Scotty Barnes. And Hmm. now you look at him and he's, he's not, you know, guaranteed offensive superstardom, but he's certainly come a long way. What is a zero level score? I don't know if I've ever heard that term before. Is it just like a play on he can't score from anywhere? I don't understand. What is a zero level score? Yeah, I think I think what it's because obviously we know the term three level score is somebody who's proficient uh-huh. in, at the rim in mid range and from three point land. And I think zero level score is to mean that he hasn't been proficient anywhere yet because everybody in the NBA scores at the rim, but would you call Fred Van Vliet a three-level scorer? I probably wouldn't because he's not proficient there. I mm. guess like that's a two-level scorer. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. If they, okay. If they I, I see. I see. So it's not literally that he cannot score. It right. is that he is below <laughs> average at making shots from most, from those levels. Uh, yeah. And so you think like that? I mean, it's it's actually kind of funny because you know you watch him and it, you just sort of have no real concept of what he can become. You know, what is his style of play? You know, the guy that I keep thinking about, and it's interesting you say, like, he's going to, you think he's going to become this, like, sort of great one-on-one superstar scorer. Is I, I keep seeing, like, what if Boris Diaw got in shape and was a little more selfish? <laughs> selfish At Scotty Barnes. Like, a selfish, like, athletic, uh, more athletic, you know, super cut up in shape Boris Diaw would look like Scotty Barnes. 
right? That's the, the guy I keep seeing. And like, that's not a isolation score type of player. Mm-hmm. Which, that's, that's where context probably fits in a lot is that the Raptors, they don't run a ton of pick and roll. And by being jumbo in the middle of the lineup with like OGN and OB, Pascal Siakam and Scotty Barnes, they find themselves in a ton of mismatches and each one of OG, OG does it the most through the post. Scotty and Pascal do it a lot from the 45 extended and they go into isolation mode. This is probably a thing that Scotty wasn't expecting, but has found himself somewhat proficient in just by happenstance. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is if you read uh, about Diao, I remember, I think this was in Jack McCallum's book or it might've been another story. I remember reading about how if when he played one-on-one against like teammates in practice, like he kicked their ass. Like, I think he would play one-on-one against Amari Stoudemire. And, like, Amari had no chance against him. Dial was just so good. It's just that in a five-on-five game, that's just never how he played. But he had such great one-on-one skill. It's just that there's just not the type of player he was. And you think about that a lot when you watch Scotty Barnes, too, where partially because you can give him the ball one-on-one in so many different places – you know, you don't you think like, oh, we could use that guy as a one on one player. But that's also the central appeal he has is that you can kind of move him around in so many different ways. And again, I think the story of Toronto's season very much is I think they're sacrificing some wins to bust test out like, oh, oh, can we put him here? Can we put him here? Can what is what happens if we put him here? What happens if we throw him along the baseline? What happens if we put him in the middle of a zone? What happens if we stash him in the corner and tell him to shoot? What happens if he screens as a part of the pick and roll? What happens if he is running the pick and roll? What happens if we post him up in the pinch post on the low post? And just the ability to sort of throw him in all these different places is what makes him such a unique, exciting player. And if you try too hard to limit what he could be, that I think is like, I'm not sure he would be able to play this way on any other team in any other setting. And it's just that that's his central appeal. You know, you can put him in all these different places. And so if you sort of reduce him to some sort of like, it's it's actually a lot like I think Siakam a few years ago, you know, where he was so adamant that he should not be placed in a box that I can do all these different things. Like I am capable of anything. It almost feels like Barnes is very much at like kind of the early stages of Siakam's career. Uh, Maybe back when in the year they won the title at the very least, but also the year before that, where it's like the, you sort of so desperately are not trying to put any sort of ceiling on him because you know that if you do, you just don't take away like kind of what he could be. And, you know, they're, they're very carefully not doing that. I think. Yeah allowing for a lot of potential outcomes, however high or low that ends up being. And, you know, taking it on the chin a little bit, as you've said, and maybe the win-loss columns this year. If Is that, you, do you think that's a fair assessment? Yes, like, I think, absolutely. I think, I think that it's particularly early in the season, you know, the Pascal OG Barnes thing doesn't quite work yet. And I think that they need more reps because uh, I think because Barnes is just sort of kind of, getting in their way a little bit sometimes you know in particular i think og's style of play has really been limited since siakam came back you know he was much more expressive doing more stuff before siakam came back but the three of them they've decided like they need those on-court reps to figure it out and smart people will figure it out but i definitely think yeah i mean there's no question to me that it has it has impacted the other two incumbent players Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my largest takeaway from that is Scotty, for a guy who was you know, represent, presented as a defense-first prospect, um, I think there's maybe some similar lines of thinking as Jaron Jackson Jr., a guy who was a, a really good defensive prospect, although Jaron was, you know, I would say rated as a better prospect than Scotty coming out of the draft. But anyway, Jaron's Same struggled. pick, right? Yeah, yeah. and um, fourth, fourth pick. Yeah. And so Jaron struggled defensively for the first couple of years. And now he's, you know, kind of, you know, a, an in vogue defensive player of the year nominee, that type of thing. He's having a great year defensively. And I don't know if Scotty gets there, but Scotty was a defense first product 
prospect who now is succeeding a lot more offensively. And the interesting thing is that Scotty is willing to take on a lot of different looks, a lot of different roles, as we talked about before. And OG is a more muted player. You have to be more deliberate in how you get him his looks and stuff like that. And so since those three have been working together, Scotty has taken on a lot of the fluid looks and Siakam has taken on a lot of the, you know, product of just giving a guy the ball looks that OG would get. And so they've been more deliberate in giving OG the ball in the post, but he has less above the break initiation. And it's led to, you know, some stagnant possessions and stuff like that. But I mean, if you want those three guys to work, this is what you have to do. Yeah, I mean, this speaks to, I think, a larger, both of what you're talking about speaks to a larger interesting thing that's going on in Toronto. And I mean, it's no secret, they're a very idiosyncratic team. Like, they don't play like anybody else in the league. Stylistically, their schemes are far different. And very much at the center of that is this idea of what positions is everybody. Um, and one of the, actually the interesting, one of the, the chapters of the book and I think the Raptors are an interesting test study for this is, you know, is it, is the game really positionalist? Like, do you think positionless basketball like is a real thing? Like to me, I think that term obscures as much as it illuminates. Like, I don't, I don't like that term. I don't know how you feel about it. I just, I've never liked the positionalist basketball idea. I think, uh, I think it's usually, yeah obscurity is probably the right term to use because it's the same with the the one through five defender doesn't really exist we use these these limitless terms like you know they're still not qualifications and expectations of certain sized players and certain roles and the raptors have rolled the dice on that obscurity as far as it pertains to um, rim protection this year and defensive rebounding by kind of scoffing at you know centers and stuff like that and the the passive benefits of playing a big guy on the court they're not they're not taking that stuff on they're not benefiting from that and they've they've changed the dynamic of their team by doing so and it is because they're changing would, that position i would disagree slightly they're benefiting oh. from some of it but not all of it like one of the things you just mentioned is this idea of size and positions right it is artificial to say that size is what determines positions that's just sort of how mm-hmm. we've done it right when positions were literally first invented in like 1890, whatever, when James Naismith invented the game, they pertain to literally positions on the floor. The centers were in the center of the floor. The forwards were in the forward part of the floor. The guards were defending the basket part of the floor. Like there is, it is entirely uh, evolutionary and not originally intended for these positions to correspond to size. The, there's it it has never been it has just become that way because of how the game has evolved but the rap you know when you say like i think a lot about billy knight billy knight is a, a key figure in this chapter the the old hawks gm do you remember when he was trying to assemble this like team of six eight players with atlanta like back in the day with like joe johnson and josh smith and marvin williams and josh childress does that ring a bell mm-hmm. so and my argument was, and one of the points I made that I think illustrates why I don't think the positionalist basketball term is that there was nothing. It was that was also size based, his his way of thinking. It just was instead of let's have a bunch of guys who are different sizes, let's have them all be the same size. It was still the wrong way to think about positions. And so he is no pioneer. He is just as flawed, and that team was just as flawed as anyone else. Like if you stick that team in today's NBA, it would be just as bad because the issue is not that they don't have the players, despite the sizes, to occupy different skill sets and roles within like a half or full court possession. The Raptors, I think, do. You know, you look at these guys that are similarly sized, they don't play the same way as each other. OG does not play like Pascal, who does not play like Scotty, who does not play like Precious Achua, who very much does not play like Chris Boucher, right? They may all be like, oh, I look at them and they're long people and they they play perimeter oriented while being big heighted, but their styles of play are very different. And so how can you play along with that concept while creating like sort of the same positional flexibility on a grander scale where it's like Scotty Barnes is not always our power forward on every possession, 
but still making it so that you have a power, a de facto power forward in every possession that changes each time. Is there a way to do that? And one of the greatest lies that the Raptors tell opponents is that they're a small team, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they, they they make you think that they're small, but like actually they play a very bully ball, big style. They just sort of force you to spread out or try to bait you into spreading out. Um, and I just think it's an interesting way to watch particularly Pascal OG and Scotty, like they don't play the same way, but they have to, they have certain things that they do that overlapped and like kind of towing that balance is very important for any team, but it's especially interesting with Toronto because they just don't play like other teams. You know, they play a different style of defense. They prioritize very different things than most teams. You know, when you talked about the, they don't get the benefits of like kind of the default benefits of having a center or a big guy. Right. I would say they protect the rim really, really well, just differently. They can't grab a defensive rebound to save their lives. But I mean, I think you said it like they don't let teams get to the paint very much. You know, mm-hmm. they stop you like early, they collectively protect it. So they actually kind of get the benefits of having a big guy in that regard but they don't get the benefits of a defensive rebounding. So you just sort of have to think of them in a totally different frame of reference, you know, where you just have to divorce positions from size entirely. I mean, that's what's really happened. It's not that the league is positionless is that your, how your size, your height, or even now your length or your weight or whatever these physical characteristics are have do not determine what position you play on any possession anymore. And I think that's really what's changed. It's just we don't have a good way of describing that other than positionalist, which I think makes it sound like these guys are all just running around doing whatever the hell they want and any and all doing different things and not having a you know defined skill set. And that's it's really just that skill and size are just kind of becoming so divorced from each other. Okay. Um. So when we think about like uh, traditional defensive backstop. A guy who's, you know, let's say if it's pick and roll, deep drop defense. Basically Milwaukee. Yes. Either Brooke or Giannis, whoever, whoever's playing that role. Mm-hmm. And n- not Bobby Portis, probably. And let's, so say, the Raps- let's say 2009 Rap Bucks. Sure. 19, 2019. 2019. Sure. Gasol and Lopez. So the Raptors of this year, they would dig down and they would be proactive in starting rotation to step in front of a guy who is you know, rim bound or something like that. And so they start that rotation and they give up advantages elsewhere. And I'm curious what you think of that, I guess, strategic plan of how to defend the paint and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's not so different than what they did three years ago or two years ago. I think to me, and this is a a section of the book as well. There was a big moment, I think um, was the right before we got to the bubble where you had for a long time, it was, you know, you gave up threes. That means that you're you have bad defensive process. Like good defenses don't surrender three-point attempts, right? Because that's a sign that you're allowing penetration to kick outs. So you had these two teams, and I, I mentioned Milwaukee specifically because I think Milwaukee and Toronto are the two teams that kind of did it in opposite ways, where they said, we're okay with threes. We just don't want you to get to the rim. But they, the way they did it is – Milwaukee just sort of went like, we're just going to barricade the room with a huge guy or huge guys. And we're going to play conservatively. And what Toronto said is the part that we're actually guarding on the floor, the space that we're guarding is not right at the basket, but it's actually like kind of right below the free throw line. It's kind of not, not high, like the nail slightly below it. Like kind of what the point where if you take one step, you're up. Right. That's the area that we are not going to let you pass. And I think Miami is uh, the other team that kind of took this approach. Yep. Toronto and Miami are the two. And so that was the first year, 2020, where a lot of the best defenses also allowed a lot of threes. That was, I think, bucking the trend of usual. But you had these two teams that did two different ways. What Toronto wants to do, to your point, is they don't want you to get to – they want to stop you at the – point where you can be one step from the rim because that way you could go to the rim but if you go one step deeper you can also kind of create the type of kick out threes that they don't don't want the Raptors said we are willing to give up north south we just are not going to let you pass this barrier 
like not at the rim, but sort of a little bit of a step removed from the rim. And we're going to exaggeratedly help out the corner to make sure you don't get there. You know, we're going to, and if that means we give up a lot of corner threes, so be it. And they were, I think, a little bit more uh, aggressive with their closeouts than Miami were, but it was the same mm-hmm. principle. And I mean, they're doing it again now. I mean, it's the same way they played for a few years. I think they, you know, don't have as good a, a personnel as they used to. I think it's a hard way to defend uh, because it requires a lot of kind of in and out and in and out and in and out and in and out. That is hard to coordinate. Um, you you want to marry that with switching and that can put certain players in difficult positions. You know, I think guys like certainly uh, Barnes and Achua, I think as well, is, are still learning how to do it right. But, you know, that's, they have decided that's like kind of how they build their team. And if you're going to play that way, you need length. You need to close horizontal space. And that means you may have to sacrifice something. So that way, it's just a totally different way of playing. You know, they're, they're, they're closing different spaces. The consequence of all that movement is that they don't have guys who can put a body on people who are trying to get offensive rebounds. So they, they've stunk in defensive rebounding for the last three years running, right? Um, this year more than most. But that they have, they've decided, and I think Miami is the other team, is that that's the space that in this new game, like we do not want to let you go past. Uh, and it's, again, different from how Milwaukee did it, but I think that more teams have adopted, if not Toronto's religious zealotry to that style of defense, certainly this concept of we are not going to let you get past this spot higher up in the lane, even if it means we're going to help off a shooter to make sure you don't get there because there are threes and then there are threes after you collapse our defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we don't want to give up. So I, I think it there, they, you know, from the perspective of like defensive innovation, Toronto is at the forefront of that over the last few years and they, they're still playing that way. Um, but they are just so zealously committed to it that, you know, they're almost like kind of what Don Nelson was with the Warriors back in the day where it's like, they're so committed to what they do that, you know, they can't modify it when they probably could use a little modification. That, yeah, that is like hubris is a term that I wonder are the Raptors really absorbed in, you know, how they've innovated that they're kind of turning away little tweaks they can make that are more conservative that might benefit the defense this year is our questions that are asked for sure. What are what are what what could that be? I mean, I look at it as like your biggest strength is is never div- too far divorced from your biggest weakness, and so you kind of take the good with the bad. But are there are there legitimate things that they can do? You think that can modify it? You know, outside of maybe finding a great seven foot two defensive rebounder. Well, this this might be I guess controversial, but. Outside of Fred Van Vliet, by the numbers, now this, you know, film and, and numbers are different, but Precious Situa has been like a demonstratively impactful defender this year as far as rim protection goes, as far as impacting the defensive glass and everything. And in some games, they actually opt to play him in drop. And, you know, he can play, you know, high drop he, and he can even go level the screen. He's had success doing it against the likes of Trey Young maybe going to more conservative schemes for, you know, certain periods of times would help a little bit, especially when we talked about Scotty Barnes, maybe there's some win loss um, differential that there's, you know, sacrificing, but you can see Chris Boucher, Scotty Barnes, Precious Achua, the guys who are a little less, I don't know, suave within the scheme, making the same rotation in succession. It's almost like they're tied at the hip and the Raptors do get confused in, you know, the zealotry of their own, like they love this scheme, they want to run it, but they're not proficient at it, or at least not to the level that they should be to dictate all of this action and activity from these guys. Yeah, I mean, that that's definitely worth a good point, worth noting. Um, it is kind of, you know, scary hours that, you know, Achua is making this impact while I think probably being <laughs> not close to the level of proficiency that he could get to, mm-hmm. you know, that's obviously like, I mean, he's, he makes more mistakes than he should, yep. but you know, the fact that he still has his impact shows a lot, you know, the question I would say though about that is, 
Yeah, you talked about these um, barns and some of these poor rotations kind of happening in you know se- sequential order, where it's like they happen at the same time. The whole system is based on a collective understanding of pain protection. So at a certain point, I mean, I, I know you can't, it's hard to accept this as a coach, right? Because you want your team to be perfect, but, you know, you're going to have to accept as an occupational hazard, I think, that some guys will over-rotate. Like that's, I'd rather they over-rotate than under-rotate if this is their style of play. Because so much of what I look at from afar that's baked into the way Toronto plays is they look at basketball as a three-dimensional sport, or I guess a four-dimensional. I don't know. I'm trying to think of how my dimensions work. <laughs> it's not just a – it's not just like a – like two-dimensional would be a shot chart and what like three-dimensional would be including up in the air. So maybe it's four-dimensional. I, I don't know exactly. But, you know, they're counting on sort of the combined length of their arms and the like kind of frantic nature of their closeouts to sort of close space in a, in a way – that only works if they're all working in tandem and they're all running around and they're all sort of going back and forth and back and forth. You know, they want to make you feel like you're seat, you're playing against eight players rather than five, you know, all of that. And so if that means that some of the more inexperienced players like over rotate, I just think that's an occupational hazard you have to accept. You know, if you want to run this style of play, like as perfectly as you possibly can, you go get the 2019 team again. Mm-hmm. You know, like, but that's the case, I think, with any with any scheme. I think what's interesting about this one is it seems a little bit more, like, tailored to where the points of attack are in a modern basketball game. You know, they're further out. They're at the, the free throw line. These guys can go further with bigger steps. This is more in line with, I think, a more spread out game. So, I mean, you just have to get – you just have to – these guys just have to get better at it with experience. Yeah. Well, that's fair too. It's like, you know, the ceiling of this type of defense remains really high. And there's even, it's something I refer to as a funk fest quartet is when the Raptors kind of spurn the traditional point guard position. And instead of, yeah, instead of playing, they've played Malachi lately. And you, you said you had just recently seen the Nets game and he's obviously in better form than we've seen of him, you know, at any other point in his career, probably. But the Raptors mm-hmm. oftentimes will go, and especially coupled with Siakam's really nice run of play between January and February, they couple no other guards and hardly any other ball skills with him. Gary Trent Jr. isn't even on the floor. And those yeah, I know, lineups, I know the lineup you're talking about. Yeah, it's like they, Pascal is the point guard, basically. Yeah. And they're they're huge. They destroy other teams by getting these huge turnover percentages. They protect the rim like crazy, and they rebound like 40% of their own misses on the other end. It's just this absurd combination of length, both defensively and offensively. And that might, you know, to your point, with all the length, you remove some of that, I don't know, room for error on these rotations or overhelping and all that kind of stuff. And so that's that's yeah. an interesting way to look at it. There is There almost isn't overhelping, right? Overhelping is the idea in a weird way sometimes. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I remember like Pascal used to just fly out so recklessly at everyone. And if you like kind of looked at it from like, you know, oh, this isn't the technical way you should be closing out on players. You know, it was, he was making so many mistakes, but it was like, it's like, you almost like it, that guy's so crazy. You never know where he is. Like that's the effect they're trying to create. I mean, why do, why do players shoot a lot of threes? I mean, one reason is because, they're worth more points, but the biggest reason is that they want to make you think that they're capable of pulling up from anywhere. So you have to guard them. Therefore they can drive by you. Right. You, you have, you can't maintain that illusion unless you're willing to actually shoot the craziest shots. Right. I mean, that's a huge element of Steph Curry's power. And, you know, this is a, this is a defensive version of that. Um, You mentioned though, like turnovers uh, in particular, and, you know, you were talking to me before the pod about this idea of how did you say it, like gamifying possessions? What was the word you used? Yeah, basically like they're they're reverse engineering the reverse engineering possession differential. Yeah. So I remember, you know, when in the nineties, this is very similar to I think how the Sonics of uh, George George Carl, Gary Payton, Sean Kipp would think. They had this style of defense uh invented by this guy, Bob Kloppenberg. Um called ESOS defense. And it was this pressure defensive scheme that 
involved kind of double teams at certain areas of the court that were considered vulnerable. There was a lot of what we now know as sort of these hit traps, whereas like kind of you, you maybe switch a pick and roll and then you kind of surprise trap the ball handler like way away from the from the hoop. They had all this sort of stuff and it was a very high risk, high gambling style of defense. But one of the things that he would always say when people would say, you know, why do you work so much on this defense? You know, why don't um, you work a little bit on offense? And he would say, this is offense. When we, we do this to force turnovers, which is mm-hmm. offense, we are indirectly, but actually directly working on our offense. We work on our defense, right? Because all those turnovers turn into easy points. It's essentially like giving your offense a head start. And that's a lot of what the Raptors have been doing as well. You can think of their defensive style as just a way to stop teams, but you can also think of it as a way of enhancing their offense, which has its own limitations with shooting and playmaking. So if you consider like kind of forcing turnovers at a part of offense, when you go big, you don't run out an offensive lineup, but you are de facto improving your offense in an indirect way by playing big. So it just is a matter of how you frame the idea of offense and defense. And Toronto is one of those rare teams. And you talked about reverse engineering possession counts. Like another way to put that is what if there are not actually two ends of the floor? What if it's all one continuous end of the floor? Uh, How can we think of how to play within that framework? And it's again, very much in line with how the modern game is played now. Like, the gap between offense and defense is shrinking every season. So this is a very futuristic, interesting way of thinking about, you know, even just the concept of a possession, you know, it's not like everybody a possession like football or a possession, like even soccer, you know, what, what actually are these possessions? What, what is the time between possessions? What are we doing then? Like, how does what we do impact how the next possession starts? These are, I think, really interesting things that they're playing with and they have that that they built their whole team around that really Mm -hmm. well that's that's probably why like second spectrum it does have the points per possession stuff but you know if you go the more granular play type stuff you get points per chance which is probably a more accurate way to measure you know what a play type is giving back and all that kind of stuff and it's also interesting that there's a difference in the way that they you know, what did the term be? Just delineate between fast break and transition because I think those are synonymous for most fans. Right. Well, again, this is another key point, key point of the book, but basically the revolution of pace and space is they've merged fast break and half court possessions together. So obviously you think of getting the ball off the court into your set quicker, but what's happened as well is the fast break looks more like a very stretched out half court set. I think the first team that really kind of opened my eyes to this was the Lakers team that won the title with LeBron. And you see it with Phoenix is really big on this. You know, when they get a defensive rebound, they think of it as our, our half court set is just starting underneath the other team's basket. And so the, the patterns that they run in, essentially create a half court possession over 94 feet. So what, what is the difference between the two? I mean, there almost isn't in a lot of ways. I mean, particularly I used to think of, you know, how do you, rather than points per chance or points per play, I used to, I I still sort of do look a lot at, you know, off misses versus off makes is sort of the way Mm -hmm. I delineate it. But even now, like teams like shove the ball up the floor off makes now so that even that is difficult to do um and again you look at what toronto is trying to build you know thinking about like sort of even upping the possession count it's very much like thinking about like if this is how the game is if it's more like this anthropomorphous like kind of constantly switching half court fast break whatever game we want to close horizontal space out and so we need to have length. And that's like the foundation of our entire organization. Like they're so committed to it. And you're going to have some, I think, occupational hazards if that's your approach, like defensive rebounding. Mm-hmm. And I kind of respect that they just go all out with it. Well, there's a, there's another aspect of it too, as far as the possession differential goes. And as you're making the point, is there two sides of the floor or is there one? And the Raptors 
a lot of times because they lack shooting on the roster and whether that was, they just weren't able to do it through free agency. Maybe they missed on a guy they liked in the draft, who knows, but they have basically three shooters, OG, Fred and Gary Trent Jr. They're all good shooters and Fred and Gary this year, especially have both trended towards probably in the 90th percentile and above each of them. But a lot of times the Raptors will play four guys on offense below the free throw line. And that is to chase offensive rebounds and they're only capable of doing this because they're comfortable with cross-matching in transition on the other end, which is another thing that's born out of their ability because of their size and length. And so that, that kind of leans towards the, there is no one side of the floor. It's just the floor. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I mean, most teams, you're right. Like most teams, if you put that many players on the baseline, it's a huge uh, floor balance issue, but Toronto's like, Hey, we can run fast and we have long arms. Like we'll be fine. You know, and so you're right. It all kind of feeds together. Uh, that's a huge element of it. I mean, the, even just like the way they close out. I mean, one again, another thing that's going to, I don't want to tease much in the book, but this is another element of the book is that because the game is played in more space, the way that you've been taught to close out is just doesn't work anymore. It's just fundamentally wrong. Right. I mean, I don't know how you were taught to close out, but you know, the whole short choppy steps Chop thing, those steps, baby. Totally. It doesn't make any sense for this game. Like it's just wrong. It, because you're, you're purposely slowing yourself down when you do that, you can't cover as much ground. And the very theory of it, um, you is that you need to do that because you're running at full speed. I was I was reading an interview with Otto Bolden. Do you know who he is? He's the the sprinter uh, for uh, NBC Sports, like sprinting analyst. Uh, right? I, I've he's heard al- of him, but I, I'm he's not always, familiar with his work. He's always uh, on TV when the Olympics are on and they're running the 100 okay. meters or whatever. I mean, he was saying, you know, when do you think a sprinter reaches like their full maximum speed in a 100 meter dash? Like at what meter line? uh 40 yeah 30 to 50 so that corresponds to about 100 it's anywhere from like 120 to 160 feet right if i my metric system conversion is right (laughs) something like that right yeah how long is an nba floor 94 the whole nba floor is 94 feet so why are you so and, and and when you close out you're closing out over how much how many feet probably like 15, if you go from like 18, 15 tops, 18. So why would you purposely slow yourself down when you're nowhere close to reaching your maximum speed? Like, why would you like say, Hey, I want to get to the, get for, I don't want to, I want to get to the shooter slower because I can't turn around, but you're running so far from your maximum speed. You're underestimating your body's ability to actually pivot and turn around. Right. Right. You're basically cutting off your nose to spite your face. So the entire theory is just doesn't make sense. So it, Toronto looks at it as we're going to run you off the line. We're going to run really fast because we know that like, not only are we long enough to recover, but the technique allows us to recover faster than you think, you know, we, we don't over, we don't underestimate like our players ability to recover. So when it looks like they're flying out, they're not flying as far out of the play as you would think, you know? So instead what I think you see a lot more of is these sort of lunges out, right? If you watch the footwork, there's kind of steps. There's like a a point where people stop and then you sort of just lunge horizontally with your arms out. And then that allow you think that, Oh, well you have no chance of getting back in the play. If you have to give up a drive, like actually that's not true. You're not close to your full speed. Your body can pivot. You, you don't need to chop your feet to slow down. Like you're not playing on a hundred meter track. You're so playing at, at on a 94 foot court. So at its bare minimum, X outs, peel switching, that kind of stuff. That's taking advantage of kinetic energy. Do you think like that's the whole, yeah, that's the whole deal. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you, you think about it, right. It's like, I mean, you, players ability to kind of zigzag especially now that there's freedom of movement in the game, like they were dramatically underrating their ability to zigzag all these years in space. Like there's this thought that like, yeah, the game is played like so spread out. I mean, 
it's not soccer. It's not football. It's not a hundred meter dash. Like 94 by 40 by 50 feet is still pretty constrained. So it seems silly to worry about, like, if, if you think about it, right. All those like sort of conversations about uh, who's the fastest player with the ball, right. None of those guys are actually going as fast as they possibly can. They don't have enough space according to, you know, this auto, the auto bone conversion. Like they're not, 90 feet is not enough for them to reach top speed so all these guys who are supposedly super fast with the ball like it's sprinting they're not actually they can all go faster if they had more space so it just seems it's just weird to worry about like oh we're gonna get off balance by pivoting you know i think obviously it happens but i think it happens less because you're going at full speed and more because you just haven't trained your body to kind of pivot technique wise flip your hips exactly right you know all that stuff so toronto i mean we're going really far afield i know um (laughs) but toronto is like one of those teams that kind of figure that out soonest it was like you know if you're just like really long and we just fly out and in and out and in we'll functionally like kind of cover more space than we would if we like purposely limited ourselves by chopping the feet yeah that that makes sense to me the other thing i want to talk to probably last thing on the defense, and then I kind of want to touch on Siakam just for a bit, is the Raptors are one of the teams that I think most aggressively said no to star players. Like, they're going to overload, they're going to give a lot of attention, and they're going to try and make role players beat you. And this was Mm -hmm. a running theme, and like a joke is that, well, if the Raptors are playing a team, one of the role players is going to give you like between 18 to 24 points because they're just going to hemorrhage possessions into those hands. And there's this idea now that's kind of bounced around. Blake Murphy coined it first in this realm. I'm sure it's been used elsewhere. But scheme preparedness as far as how teams have adjusted to that, how role players have adjusted to playing the Raptors. They seem to be a little bit more proficient. Now, I don't have the numbers on that, like at a wide scale, but I'm, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably accurate. Um, again, this is a, a – not to go back to the Sonics, but this is a very Sonicsian – thought process you know Hakeem Olajuwon always hated playing against the Sonics because they literally were like we're gonna we're gonna let anyone else beat us and we don't care so that's it's not an entirely new idea to say like we just don't want the star to beat you I think the interesting part is it plays on the tendency of offenses to build around players rather than principles even Mm -hmm. now and so if you're going to beat it and you have your, your, your team is built around principles, your, your role players, as you call them, I mean, or let's say like the guys that are not the center of your uh, sets, whatever, they're not like kind of the nexus point of where like kind of you create or, or create an advantage, let's say they, they're the, the advantage exploiters. Like they are more empowered now than they were a few years ago. And they are going to continue to be more empowered. And so, you know, Toronto's argument is we're long enough to make up those gaps. So even if they are more empowered to take those shots, like we're just going to close that space. Like what will seem like an open shot against us is not going to be an open shot. But, you know, the game is becoming more well-rounded in that respect, in that, that stage, you know. Have they played Phoenix yet this year? I honestly can't remember. Yeah, they they lost by just a couple points, but uh, did I? Yeah, it was game? it was at, it was at the start of the new year. I have to. I think I watched that game. Let me check my yeah, whatever. But that's a team. Phoenix is a team that's very much built in this idea of, you know, we're going to just be so good at the once we create the advantage. Like, how do we exploit it? Mm-hmm. We're just going to be like a plus 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 at that with how we move, with how we move the ball, with how we space. And so those are the teams that I think Toronto, it, you know, does it does give Toronto trouble. Toronto, I think it, it would be very interesting to see, you know, Toronto has always defended Embiid very well, at least in terms of limiting Embiid's points and, you know, own stats. What happens when they play? I think they played Philly soon, right? They played Philly on December 28th, although Pascal – they still had a bunch of like Fred was out, OG was out. They still had a bunch of COVID stuff going on, I believe. But MB ate them alive. 
they played they play Philly in um a couple of weeks. I, I okay. thought they played him sooner. Uh but yeah, I mean now what happens now that they have happened to um that will be interesting to see. Uh but yeah, no, I mean I think I think I don't know if it's maybe some of it is conscious, like hey, teams are empowering the role players, but I also think some of it is just like kind of the changing tide of the sport in a little bit of a way. You know, there are more quote unquote role players who have to active activate more skills, mm-hmm. and that'll be it'll be interesting to see how Toronto handles that. Like, will they just say? you still need space for those skills and we can shut down that horizontal space or our team's going to find more ways to exploit that. I actually think that interestingly, what may be a better way to exploit that is, you know, to move less and to sort of centralize your play into like a guard or a ball handler and play in more space and spread everybody else out. And so make it harder for Toronto to just flood the zone. Okay. This is, this it, is really it, interesting. Like you, this you, is I think what, you wrote you wrote this about is what this, the, right? this is what the Hawks did. Yeah. The Hawks was... stopped running pick and roll and just isolated Trey and he killed them. Like absolutely destroyed them. Yeah. I mean, I read that piece and like that makes sense to me. Um, you know, at a certain point, uh that may be a more effective strategy, particularly uh if you do have a smaller player in there. Yeah, I mean that creates its own set of challenges. Like, you know, in some ways you're just sort of stopping all you're, you're purposely limiting your offense. But I mean, that's something that, for example, teams in the nineties couldn't do to Seattle. Like they just didn't play in enough space, but you know, Atlanta can do that with Trey young. Uh, I'm curious to see what happens when Philly, what can they do that with Harden now? Or are they, do they not have enough spacing on the floor to do that? Um, you know, I'm curious if they ever play Brooklyn at full strength, can Brooklyn do that to them? You know, because there's a difference between doing that and the nexus point of your offense is like inside the three point line and doing that with someone like Trey young, who is small, you can put him far away from the basket, but his whole game is sort of getting into you and then crossing back or crossing around you. Like he needs to kind of almost get underneath you. So that's another way that, I mean, it's almost the inverse of what you described, uh, before with the like kind of role players wanting to succeed, like maybe the better solution is to just say, keep those role players doing less and centralize more into your stars. Um, that's, it's going to be interesting to track that for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, the last question I have for you is regarding Siakam. The last time we talked pre pandemic, you described him as, you know, th- this chaotic player, but in the best way possible. And as one of the most intriguing players in the league, at that point in time, he was fresh off the max contract. He was headed to make, you know, second team all NBA. And since then, the Tampa season where he made meaningful strides as a playmaker, but, you know, tapered off as a pull-up three-point shooter, which he was 34% in the 2019-20 mm-hmm. season. It was insane. And this year, I would say he's playing his best basketball even better than that second team all NBA year. I'm curious what you think of him currently. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I mean, he had, I think after Kawhi left, he had that, like, the beginning of the second team All-NBA year. He was spectacular, and then he really fell off, I think, once his shots stopped falling. And then he was had his problems in the bubble, uh, had his problems with Nick Nurse. I think this has been pretty well documented. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had some problems before he got hurt in the Tampa year, and then I think – you know, you pointed to some sort of under the hood, subtle improvements that I think maybe are showing up this year more uh, with the way he's played, where I think in the macro sense, his game seemed to have stagnated. But yeah, like now some of the things that he was working on have improved. Um, I think what's interesting about Siakam, I and mean, you say he's playing the best he ever has, you know, it. What, what I think is happening is that his role is like kind of the most clearly defined as it's ever been in an ironic way because Scotty Barnes has kind of taken so much of the, like kind of you're the run around and do the do random shit guy out of him. Now Siakam is very much playing like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to attack in space to go get downhill. Like that's my role. I'm going to post up. I'm going to draw double teams. I'm going to kick. I'm going to play inside down inside the line, uh, a three point line. 
Uh, and that's kind of my sole focus. And now I'm doing less of the like sort of fill in the gap type of things. You know, he's almost play Barnes has almost freed him to be a more defined kind of centralized, like this is what I do type of player. And it, I think that's been good for his career because, you know, there is a limit to being the fill in the blanks guy that he discovered, I think, sort of the the limit of that when he got off to that hot start and then it was a hard fall when teams started to figure him out. And I think it was very hard for him to adjust to kind of what that meant on a, on a higher level. And now I think he's kind of figured that out a little bit more. He's got kind of less sort of anchored to what he, the player he was. And now he can kind of start fresh and just sort of focus on what he does uh, best and not – try to do too many things all the time. And so that's, that's at least what I've noticed, whether that means he's better than he was two years ago, I think is sort of a matter of opinion. It depends sort of how you, you think of him, how you frame what he does, but I just think he's, he's playing a more like kind of defined role way now than he was in the past. And I think, you know, as you talked about earlier, the consequence has been you've seen less of OG being able to express himself because of that. You know, I think like the Pascal OG thing, it's it's hard to have both of them being like kind of the full expressive versions of themselves. And when Pascal was out, OG kind of had that little stretch where he was able to do that. Now that Pascal is back, he sort of sees that back for from OG and kind of put OG more in a kind of not a bad role. I mean, he's still quite a valuable player, but I think any dreams of OG being like this, like sort of star one on scoring type of player i think are pretty much doomed you know he is who he is i think unless pascal's not there and is that worth the trade-off i mean i think so but i think that's sort of what's happened to the to him to barnes and to og this season it's um it's really interesting i was asked this i think around the new year and a lot of the conversations the reason why i wrote a piece about the partnership of scotty barnes and pascal and Openly, I've been saying that I think Pascal has the best, I don't know, eye for Barnes in advantage out of anybody on the Raptors. Is The Raptors fandom was very concerned with how Pascal was going to mitigate Scotty Barnes. And nobody noticed that it was actually OG Ananobi was the guy who was going to lose the possessions. And OG is mm -hmm. still the number one post-up hub on the Raptors. He scores the most points out of post-up. He has the most touches out of post-up. And he has the most assists out of post-up. But that is a more deliberate play type that they go to early in game. And yeah, the the initiation above the break and stuff like that, Pascal has affected OG in that way. It, it should be interesting to see how OG responds after getting his finger, I guess, fixed and looked at. Because apparently he's been dealing with that for roughly two, three months, which is crazy. I, I remember seeing a picture once of Sean Marion's fingers and I think <laughs> I, I think I like need to throw out the rest of the day. Like, I think it's amazing how many NBA players have like these like deformed fingers, um, which makes sense. Cause they're sort of constantly raising their hands in places. Uh, no, I, I shared those concerns about Scotty and Pascal. And I, I think it has been interesting to see how it's played out. I think you've hit the nail on the head that it's OG who's kind of bore the brunt of what you thought maybe Scotty would bear or Pascal would bear, you know, mm -hmm. all those sorts of concerns that maybe people have have just been kind of transferred to a third player, uh, which may or may not mean a good, be good or bad. I mean, if OG is this player, like, I don't I think still he's a pretty good player. Mm -hmm. It may just be that he is this player. And I kind of always thought that i've always kind of been a little skeptical that og had like this massive upside to be significantly better than he is but he's still quite good you know and it's fine uh but you know it's interesting you mentioned that like kind of pascal sees scotty the best and i hadn't really thought of that but i'm putting a thought together in my head now but when i was sort of we we're talking about pascal kind of being what scotty currently is maybe three or four years ago with Kawhi there, with DeMar DeRozan there the year before, it kind of makes sense to me now that they seem to be on the same wavelength because I'm sure maybe if you think about it this way, Pascal sees a lot of himself in Scotty Barnes in that kind of chaotic, ad-libbed uh, sort of style of play. And so he just sort of, maybe he just has like kind of a very 
obvious understanding of that type of player that reflects in that chemistry you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. F- finds the same advantages that he did earlier. And, you know, as interesting as it has been that, you know, Barnes is the author of more points than anybody of more of his own points than anybody might've guessed, especially within the half court context. Um, Pascal seems to, and Scotty's a good cutter, which helps because Pascal gets doubled. I think top five in the NBA, as far as, you know, how often it's happening relative to his own possession. So if a guy gets right. doubled and you're a good cutter, there's, there's going to be openings for sure. Is Scotty a good cutter or is he just never stop cutting? Yeah. Yeah. Where, <laughs> where does it end? Where does it begin? Yeah. yeah like what he's basically like, he's a volume cutter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, like there's no recognition of like, okay, you know, there's the tag. I'm going to bring the weak side zone guy into the paint and open up a three point shot. It's not like that. It's just, he's constantly whirling around in the half court. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's actually more like there's some of that, but I think it's actually more like he's, he thinks every possession situation is what you described. <laughs> <laughs> like every situation he's like thinking almost, he's got this, like, like, uh, I, like as a, I, I'm going to kind of, out myself as this huge star wars fan here but it's like he, i keep wanting to like be like yoda to loop to him and be like you know stop looking to the horizon stop looking five moves ahead and focus on where you are uh <laughs> you know uh still looking to the horizon scotty like I, I have that like kind of vision in my head like he's almost almost it, it, he's kind of on a higher level than everybody else uh, but he's also anyway. I, I'm rambling about that, but yeah, he, he has tremendous feel. He reads the game at a, a super high level for sure. Yeah, that's sort of why I think Diaw. <laughs> when yeah. I watch him, he just sort of has this like, like he's almost reads it at too high a level sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Galaxy braining possession. Yeah, right? yeah. Is there uh, is there any parting shots you have for Raptors fans? A plug for the forthcoming book and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it should be out in the fall. I'm almost done editing. I, I don't think it will be what people expect it to be, which I think is a good thing. You know, it was pitched to me as like write a book about how to watch basketball, and it's turned into something a little different, and I'm really excited about it. Um, I think the main point that's being made is that if you're ready to challenge your assumptions of how basketball works, I think you'll enjoy the book. You come in with an open mind, say like, you know what, maybe I actually don't know anything about how this new style of play works. Um, you know, just sort of imagine like questioning every single belief you have about the game. I think it'll be really good. Um, that's sort of where I want to, what I'm hoping to gain out of it, almost like to relearn how this game works because it is a different game. Um, as far as for Raptors fans, I mean, you guys, you guys have a fun team. Like you're, you have this development factory and this identity that most fan bases would kill to have. So you're not going to win the title every year. You're probably going to be pretty good every year, but you have something that as a fan base that I think every people look at your fan base and say, I wish that our team had an identity like that franchise. It's like kind of you guys in Miami and you're less militaristic. So you see more fun about it. (laughs) (laughs) So like, you know, pretty, keep appreciate that like i'm a wizards fan like we have no identity we have no guiding principle other than let's try to build the most 38 and 44 team we possibly can every single year yeah it's tough yeah totally the the raptors they're they're intriguing even when they're bad and i think that's uh they're at least trying stuff if it, if it doesn't work it doesn't yeah. work but things are being attempted you have alignment, like everything in your organization is aligned to the same goal. And that is so hard to get in professional sports. You know, Miami does it through sheer force of will and like kind of probably like not cool uh, methods. You guys do it the right way. <laughs> I guess. Like it's just, it, it's such a hard thing to get every, like you have a culture, like every team talks about culture. Like you have a, t- you're, you're the one of the few teams that actually has a culture like that is so powerful that I think you guys should appreciate that. Yeah. A binding ethos. Very important. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thanks for having me and letting me ramble. Oh man. The the rambles are, that's where the gems are. I think you know that. Yeah. No question about that. 
Um, yeah. But yeah, to keep up the great work you guys do, I I think I definitely did a lot of cheating off your material coming into this uh, this <laughs> podcast to make sure I had refreshed what I was what I was seeing. So keep up the great work. Awesome, thank you so much. And for the listener, if you were intrigued by the turnover differential, um, I will link Joe Wolfon's piece at the score in the in the article version of this uh, podcast because uh, if you're he he dives into it in a way that's more concise than what Mike and I did here. So if you're interested <laughs> in that, uh, yeah, there's a there's a piece on it. So uh, Mike, thanks so much for hopping on with me and being so gracious with your time, listener. Thanks for tuning in. And whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye.